All right, well, this morning we are, um, we're continuing on in a series of, uh, of the book of Revelation. And uh, you probably know, if you're at all familiar with the book of Revelation, it's one of those dreaded books. Um, there is no shortage of speculation when it comes to Revelation. And, um, and, and, we've, and we've kind of been wading our way into it. And so, you know, like any good series, uh, when you're watching on TV, they start with the recap. Like, you know, here's what's happened up to this point. Um, so, so let's do that because we're all the way up in chapter 6. And so to recap where we have been up to this point, we started out in chapter 1, and that clearly identified Jesus as being the one that Revelation was written to reveal. Uh, Jesus, not the end of the world, uh, not the Antichrist, but uh, Revelation was written to reveal Jesus. And then, and then we saw over and over again that there's nothing we need desperately more at any given moment in time than to see him and encounter Jesus for who he is, not who we want him to be, which is the challenge, but to see him for who he is, the exalted and the glorified Jesus. And then from there, we walk through a series of, of letters, letters that Jesus wrote to different churches. Uh, he is passionate about church, and he is present amongst his people in a very intimate and personal way. And then over the last two weeks, um, we got swept up with John into the uh, throne room of heaven. And, and we, we've been challenged to lock into what's going on up there while we're living out our lives down here. Okay, so, so there may have been a few exceptions, but I think, hope you agree with me, but for the most part, up to this point, things have been pretty tame, you know, um, in Revelation terms at least. But I have to tell you that all that is going to change this morning. Um, we are about to dive into the deep end of the book of Revelation, and, and we are going to get into that part of the book that your mother warned you about. You know, some really scary scenes, some very intense imagery is going to come up. And, and here's the crazy thing, is that for some of you, you are going to hear what we're going to read through this morning. You're going to say, yep, this is exactly why I avoid this book. But for others of you, you're going to have the exact opposite response. You're like rolling up your sleeves and you're like, oh, finally, this is the stuff that I've been waiting for. This is where it all starts getting good. So, so, so let me just set things up this morning and let you know how we're going to navigate through this. Um, I want to tell you, my, my training, um, my, my passion is to preach the living word of God in ways that connect and intersect with what's going on with our lives. Now, there's a process to that. Um, it involves explaining what the word of God meant first to those it was originally written to. And then after we figure that out, then, then we kind of take out what are the timeless truths that apply to us today and then we take those and just kind of work them out. What does this mean for our lives? So it's kind of like a three-step process. The term is, is exegetical preaching. Um, it means basically drawing out what's there instead of reading in what we want to. But here's the reason why I'm telling you this is because a lot of teaching on the book of Revelation in particular 
it hopscotches over the first step, right? So instead of starting with what it meant to them and there, it starts with here and now. Now, no one does that with any other book in the Bible, but it happens all the time in Revelation. And so people will say, yeah, those flying creatures in Revelation, those are military jets carrying nuclear bombs, right? And, 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 and that person, you know, this world leader must be the Antichrist because this is going to fit some kind of mold that we have preconceived in our minds. Um, have you ever heard that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you familiar with that? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for that kind of stuff. Actually, maybe I am. <laughs> um, but, but more than that, what I want to say is that we, we, we need to wrestle first through what this book meant to those it was originally written to. Because here's the thing. This book, the Bible, it's written for us. But it wasn't written to us originally. Each book in the Bible were, were letters or narratives that were written to particular people, working through particular issues. And, um, and Revelation was written to, to a group of Christ followers who were trying to make sense of a world that seemed to be spiraling out of control. That's, that's who this was written to, a world where nothing seemed to make sense and everything around them, life was falling apart at the seams for these Christ followers. And so that's the original context. What we're going to do is we're going to work through some larger portions of Scripture. We're going to follow some of the big picture plot lines and see what unfolds. Um, and so last we left off, we were at the at the throne room of heaven, Jesus, the bloodied lamb, bloodied lamb of God, had just ascended into the throne room, and, and, and he took the scroll uh, from the right hand of, of the Father, and, and the scroll with seven seals, and, and, and as he did that, because this scroll contains like God's final instructions uh, for how to make right everything that's wrong on this planet, and, and as he took that scroll, all of heaven erupted in praise. All of creation worshipped and, 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 and declared that the Lamb is the only one worthy uh, to take charge of this world, to make what's wrong right, and, and to fix this broken planet. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6. Uh, we're going to see what gets set into motion as the Lamb opens up each of these seals. And so I'm going to read it together. If you remember when we first started on the very first Sunday... Um, there's a promise in the book of Revelation at the very start that says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this book out loud. And so we are going to read through uh, some scripture here this morning in expectation that there is a blessing um, that comes along with that. So here's what it says. Um, it says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with salmon and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? All right, we're going we're gonna to stop right there. Um, did I mention that I am very glad to see you here this morning. Uh, I don't know why, but I kind of feel compelled to repeat that again um, because uh, this is some challenging, uh, there's some challenging words here and, and I want to just uh, ask that you to stay with me. Um, let's walk through this passage together. There is some really graphic imagery going on here, isn't there? Man, uh, Jesus... Um, the Lamb of God is opening these seven seals from the scroll. And as each one gets removed, it sets into motion some kind of like devastating apocalyptic activity. That's what it seems like, right? It, it starts out with the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Maybe you've heard them mentioned. Um, so here's what I want to present to you, that instead of, of seeing these four horsemen as God's divine judgments, I want to just invite you to consider that these may be the plight of our planet and the history of civilization. So, so let me explain what I mean. Um, conquest is the first horseman. He comes riding in on this white horse. And to satisfy that insatiable desire within the heart of humanity to conquer and to rule the second horse, the second rider follows after him. He's on a blood red horse and uh, he's given a great sword. And, and in the wake of, of, of warfare comes the third rider, the one riding on the black horse. He's got the set of scales in his hand and these scales are just way out of balance because during warfare, resources become scarce and, uh, and, and there's economic inflation and there's exploitation as well. And so a day's wage 
Uh, it doesn't even buy enough bread to be able to stay alive, let alone put food on the table for a family. And while that's the case, um, the majority are struggling, but the luxury items, the oil and the wine, they keep on getting produced, right? Because those who already have need to get more so they can continue to indulge in excess. And at the end of it, the ultimate outcome of all this is the final rider. His name is Death. He's on a pale horse, and he's got a sidekick behind him named Hades, and they just basically claim and pick up all of those who the other riders have had their way with. All right, so um, I just want to ask you, does that sound just a little bit like the history of our world, the history of our planet? Um, make no mistake, to those who this was originally written to, to those living in the first century Roman world, those horsemen represented daily realities. And still today, these realities for the majority of the world are an ongoing basis that have to be dealt with, that are suffered and endured on an ongoing basis. So, so here's the take home for this passage. Um, even during those times when it seems to us down here like all hell is breaking loose. This is telling us that's not the whole story. There's, there's more going on and you, we need to lock into the whole complete picture. The most important thing we see here is that the sovereignty of God is is ruling over all of it, over the invasions, over the exploitations, over the plagues. Each one of these horsemen, they get beckoned. They get called. They didn't break out. They're not out doing whatever they want to. They get called out, right? And, and each rider, they don't just, they don't take what they have. Did you notice that? Each one is, is given something. They're given what they have. They're permitted to do what they do. So the red rider is given permission to take peace from the planet. And, and even death and Hades, uh, as devastating as they are, if you look, you see, they're, they're, they're not on some kind of free-for-all rampage. They're on a leash. They're under authority. They don't have carte blanche. They only work within the limits that have been set up for them to operate under. They're only allowed to claim a, a quarter of the population. See, that's, that's, that's the picture this passage is painting, that the worst of what happens down here is still subject and under the authority of the lamb up there. All right? Now, we might not like that, uh, we may not agree with it, and we definitely can't always make sense of it. And of course, you know, the moment you or I can figure out how to create our own universe and, and sustain our own universe and redeem our own universe, we are free to make our decisions our own way. But until then, this is the snapshot, this is the portrait of this picture of an almighty, sovereign God ruling over the plight of this planet. But then it's the next seal. Those are the four horsemen. Those are the first four seals. But how about this fifth seal? This is the one that I think would have surprised them the most. Um, John sees the souls of his, of his fellow slain Christ followers. 
They're, they're martyrs who, just like Jesus, they paid the ultimate price and they got killed because of the word of God, because they gave testimony and bore witness to Jesus. And so there they are and they're crying out to God in expectation and they plead, how long, Lord, how much longer until you judge the world this, this planet that is set up against you, how long before you avenge our blood? You know, the henchmen are on their horses, and this sure seems like a good time to get going on this judgment thing, right? Make right all of these wrongs that have been done against the lamb and against his people. But did you see the answer that they're given? They're told to wait. They're told, now... It's not time yet. It's going to be a little bit longer. And, and, and not only that, they're actually told, guys, you need to move over and make more room because company is coming. That's shocking. There, there's, there's a specific number of saints that God Almighty has sovereignly ordained to be killed, to get slain. What the heck is going on? Now, we don't, know, we don't know what that number is, but the message that they get is that it's not until that number gets reached, that's when things are going to change and the score is going to get settled. You know, that started out with Stephen in the book of Acts. He was the first martyr. He was the first one slain because of his testimony to Jesus. He was stoned to death. And then we read earlier in Revelation chapter 2 about a guy named Antipas. He had been killed because of his faith. Over the past 2,000 years, that number of martyrs, of those who were killed because they profess Jesus, has just gone up and continued to rise and go up and increase. And this is the challenge. This is the central challenge that the book of Revelation is written to address. How the heck do God's people make sense of what's going on, right? How do we wrap our minds around this reality that we are watching brothers and sisters? We're on the winning team, right? We're on the side of the conquering lamb. And yet we see them getting persecuted, arrested, and killed. We, we struggle with that, don't we? We all do. And, and I can honestly say that I wish I had the answer. I wish I had the complete answer, but I don't. But what we do know is that God is in control and he has a plan. He has a purpose, even for faithful witnesses who stand firm in the face of suffering, of persecution, and even of death. I, I was a sophomore in college in 1989 and, and I clearly remember that horrific sight on the newscast, the, the tanks running over bodies in Tiananmen Square. Do you remember that? Uh, that? That tragedy now has been called a watershed moment. That has been called a watershed moment that caused countless atheist, communist, Chinese residents to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, God, God has a plan. God had a plan when, when his son Jesus died, when he was killed, when he was nailed to a cross. Revelation talked about that, that he is the faithful witness 
the firstborn of the dead. And on the other side of his death and resurrection, he became the ruler of the kings of the earth. That was back in Revelation chapter 1. He blazed that path. We as his people walk that path behind him, living out lives in cruciform uh, form. And, and, and if you remember, it's kind of the Mandalorian saying that, that this is the way. This is the way. This is the path that we are on, that we're traveling on. And, and so the time is not yet, but the time is coming. A delay, we don't want to mistake for a cancellation. The justice of God demands that there be a day of reckoning. And, and the sixth seal that we looked at, that assures us that that ultimate storm is on its way. It is coming. And when that storm hits, it says that the very foundations of this planet are going to unravel. When, when, when all the realities that we just take for granted, like, you know, you wake up in the morning, you look out the window, and the sun is there. It's been there every day of our existence, right? You, you look at the sky at night, and you see the moon, and you see the stars. We just assume it. We don't even give a second thought about it. But, but it's saying here that this day is coming when the foundations are going to actually fall apart. The, the dreadful day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's, it's marked on God's calendar, and, and John makes the point, no one gets exempted from it, right? The kings and the generals, the rich and the famous, the slaves as well as the free, all of humanity is going to run in terror. And the key question is the last one that we read in verse 17. Who will be able to stand on that day? That's, that's the question. And, and that's the question that the passage goes on and answers. Because it is possible to stand on that day. Um, and, 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 it, and it talks about three groups of people who can stand on th that day. Uh, the first, it says, is the sealed. And so let's keep on reading, and here's what it says about the seal. It says, Then I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, and the seal of the living God, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Okay, let me stop here and let's unpack what's going on here. The point is being made here is that the sealed can stand. And so, the passage kind of opens up and it's like, hold your horses, right? Wait, stop, 
don't move over yet. The skies are going to break open, but before they do, before that storm hits, this angel enters on the scene, and he's carrying with him the seal of the living God, some kind of identifying mark that shows these belong to God. These belong to the Lamb. These are the ones who belong to me. And, and he says, don't do anything until the servants of God get sealed on their foreheads. Now, for John, an Old Testament passage would have been echoing in his, in his, in his mind. Uh, Ezekiel 9. God did the same thing with the Israelites back then. He was about to judge the rampant idolatry going on in, in, in Jerusalem amongst his people. But first, he ordered an angel, pass through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the faithful, the ones who had been groaning over the abominations that were going on instead of excusing them and embracing them. And those who were sealed were safe. They were able to stand on that day of reckoning and, and, and that day when God's wrath rained down. And so what we're seeing here is the same thing is happening again, uh, but in Revelation, everything gets expanded. It's not just Israel. This is the entire earth. This is global, and the faithful remnant throughout all of the earth gets sealed. They get set apart, the ones who belong to him. You know, I, I can't help but hear that, and, and my mind goes to Ephesians chapter 1. It spells out all of these amazing, overwhelming blessings, heavenly blessings that are found in Jesus, in him. And then it says in verse 11 that, that those blessings are ours to claim when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. And then here's what it says next. And we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The seal means you're safe. The Holy Spirit sets up his home in your heart once you place your faith in Christ. And God sets you apart and claims you as his own. The idea is we're not forgotten. We're not overlooked. Things get hard. Persecution happens. All these bad things are going on. But you're not, forgetting. You're not forgotten. You are set apart. The Holy Spirit is the seal of the living God. And his presence is is our protection. And again, not from persecution, right? We've already seen that. That is going to happen. Troubles are going to happen. Life is going to be hard. What we're sealed from is that ultimate wrath of the Lamb. So rest assured, if you are in Christ, you're sealed and you're safe. Okay, now the passage also, it numbers those who are sealed. It makes a big deal about these numbers. And what, one of the interpretive questions that everyone has to kind of work through is, is, is particularly in Revelation, is, is this question. Are these numbers meant to be taken literally or symbolically, right? And, and as you can imagine, there are more than one view on that. Um, so here's my personal take, is that the literal meaning of this passage requires us to take these numbers symbolically, okay? Um, now, I'll also add, for those of you who are students of Scripture and of prophecy and revelation, you are free to disagree with me on that. We are all good. We can still be friends, even if you're wrong. Um, 
But uh, numbers um, in Revelation, they're literary devices, okay? Um, they help tell the story. And so, like, we use things in English to do that as well. We use, like, rhymes, you know, like, so we say, roses are red, violets are blue, skunks stink, and so do you, right? And so we got that rhyme thing going on. Back in the first century, that would have been, that is so simplistic. We need something a lot more complicated and sophisticated than that. And so they use things like numbers. Um, if you are into math, if you're into numbers, I will tell you, Revelation is like a goldmine. You will love this book. There is so much that is absolutely fascinating. You can totally geek out on like how many times the number seven is used. Um, actually, you, you have to indulge me for one minute because this is kind of going to try to explain and make sense of these numbers here. So it says 144,000 get sealed in total. Now that number, 144, it shows up a few times in Revelation. It's 12 times 12. All right, so 12 um, would be the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles. Uh, together, that represents all of God's people's throughout all of time, throughout all of history. That's, that's who Revelation identifies as the true Israel. And then 144 times 10 cubed comes out to 144,000. I know this is getting weird, but just stay with me. Because what we're going to see is that at the end of the book, that's the size of the four walls that go around the the, 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 the city of the new Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's a cube. It's, it's four times that. It's a square. And that's not just like, that's not just something to be cute. It's actually very concrete because that is the shape. A, a square is the shape of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. That, that place where, where the presence of God was manifest, where, where he dwelt. And and, and, and that's actually in contrast, we're going to see, is to the pagan temples. Because they were never in a cube. They were in other shapes that couldn't be, you know, squared, that weren't round numbers. That's where, like, triangular numbers come from, like 666. And so it's going to open all of this up. By the way, this isn't just, like, Pastor Brian's crazy speculation. Um, this, is, this is how people thought back in the first century. You know, they, they didn't just think abstractly. They were very concrete. And so four walls that made a square around an altar made sense. They're equal. And so that gets played out in the way Revelation got written. Okay, so all that to say that my take is that this is referring to all of God's people throughout all of history, not just to the Jewish tribes, but to all of us who have been grafted in, whose final destination is, is the new Jeris Jerusalem, they're sealed from that, stumming, that coming storm. Okay, so, so thanks for bearing with me on that little um, you know, rabbit trail. I dove a little bit deep. I hope I didn't lose any of you and that you're still hanging on. Um, the basic point is that the sealed ones are going to be able to stand when that final storm of the reckoning day of God comes. And the passage goes on again, and it also, it's not only the sealed, but it's also the saved who can stand. So here's what it says. It says, then I looked, I'm sorry, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. If you want to count these next words, there's seven. Okay, just, I'm just telling you, for you guys who love numbers, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might um, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so this, this second snapshot, it, it's a continuation of what we just saw. The sealed are also the saved because John heard the 144,000 and then when he looks, what he sees goes way beyond what he heard. He saw an uncountable multitude, not just, not just people from around the block, not just from the local, local region. He saw masses from around the world. In other words, it's not just a certain pedigree of people who can stand in the storm. What God is doing, what he is about, it's not tribal, it's, it's global. It's worldwide. God's plan is through the Lamb to redeem a people all of his own from all over the planet. His people are made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. This is the most amazing image. And by the way, just again, that saying of people from every tribe, nation, and, and language, that's also repeated seven times in Revelation. I'm just... I'm just Put it out there. Um, they declare and they confess out loud together in unison, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what, what we're seeing here is, is that there are ultimately two categories of humanity. And the categories, they're not racial, they're not national, they're not social, they're not political, they're not anything like that, all of those dividing lines, they just fade away into the background and into the forefront are those who have been sealed and saved, washed clean by the blood of the lamb, and those who haven't. Those are the only two categories that ultimately matter. And it's those who acknowledge that salvation is found in Jesus. It's found in the lamb. It says they're safe. They're able to stand when that storm hits. And that means no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, the blood of Jesus was shed for you. The salvation he won on the cross is available for you to receive by faith, by trusting in him. And that promise doesn't just apply to people who look like you, who dress like you, who act like you. Um, ultimate diversity is found underneath the banner of the Lamb. That's the beautiful thing in this passage because his blood bled for all people around this planet. And, and so if you happen to be one of those who have a hard time with people who don't act like you or, or dress like you or look like you, just, just keep that in mind because heaven is going to be a place where there's going to be a lot of different people. It's going to be a highly multi-ethic assembly that's what it's, that's it's going to look like. So it's the sealed who can stand. It's, it's the saved who can stand. And, and there's one final snapshot here uh, that it shows us that it's, 
It's those with a shepherd who can stand. So it says this, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's an amazing metaphor here. And that is that the lamb, who typically requires a shepherd because lambs don't know where they're going or what they're doing, the lamb is the shepherd. The lamb will be their shepherd. Those who are following the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ can stand. This is the promise. They'll be shielded. They'll be sheltered on that day when the ultimate storm hits down. And again, this isn't talking about any kind of temporary physical shielding. This is talking about ultimate eternal safety. Jesus said, remember, he said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, there, there is a shepherd who doesn't just lead our lives to the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death into eternal life, and his name is Jesus and when he's the shepherd of your life, you're in good hands. And the idea is keep following him. It's not going to be easy, but you can know this for certain. You will ultimately wind up in that destination where you are safe, where you can stand, and he will lead you to that place of ultimate joy and abundance and refreshment. And there's no other shepherd that can do that. Let him take the lead. And keep on following. So let me, let me close because there's seven seals. And, and this is a really short one here. And this is going to bring us to the end. It says this. Um, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. A pause. Quiet time. To take in, to consider, to survey. What did we just see? What is going on here? What does it mean? The way I'm reading through this, I kind of compare them to uh, a portrait book of our lives. You know, we got these picture books, and on each page there's a different picture. Um, and there's something to really think about, something to really consider. Because what we see here is that most of our albums are going to have some really horrible pictures in them. It's, it, it's, it, it's just true. There are some horrible things that we go through. There are some horrible things going on in this planet. And one of the things I want to leave you with and ask you is, do the pictures in your storybook align with the reality of what life is really like? Because here's the, here's the problem for church people, for Christians, for 
for good guys, right? We, we tend to deny how hard things can get, right? But life comes with nightmares. It does. And Revelation is a book that we need because as intense as our experiences are, are the same degree of the intensity of Jesus' response and his ability to shepherd us through and walk us through those nightmares and those difficult challenges that we go through. I do believe that there is a certain sense in which there is a reason why there is such a, there's a genre of movies called horror, right? Because we know that there is an intensity of emotion that things are so terrible that nothing else actually is adequate to, to express that. And yet, whatever it is, however dark the night, however difficult the nightmare, here's the reality. There is a lamb who is right there beside you. No matter how hard it gets, he is with you every page of this storybook. Stick with him. Stay close. He will lead you to that place of safety and shelter. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's bigger than whatever it is that is haunting our lives, and he is able to redeem the very worst situation we can imagine and make all things new. Let's pray together.